You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome to Real Investor Radio. It's Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere coming at you. We're back home. Just visited IMN Scottsdale. Uh, for those of you who have never been, it was my first time, Jack. A uh, lot to talk about there. Yeah, it's a great conference. It's uh, IMN is a conference company. They put on all kinds of business, real estate, finance conferences. Uh, and back in 2013, I think, um, they started putting on a single family rental SFR conference as that industry was just starting to emerge. And they put it on twice a year. You know, back 10 years ago, we talked about this in some of the original episodes of, of the RIR podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly dominated by uh, institutional investors and folks who were, you know, just really Wall Street right when they were starting to get into the single family industry and try to figure out is this an asset class or not. Um, and over the years, uh, the conference has just grown. Uh, and they continue to have that particular conference twice a year. They put on a lot of other conferences as well that may be of interest to real estate investors. Their website's worth checking out. I think it's imn.org. Mm-hmm. And um, so this SFR conference has really become like, I think, the biggest aggregation of folks who are professional real estate investors, lenders, vendors who are serving that SFR industry more broadly. Yeah. So, they cover everything from property management and operations to securitizations of rental loans. So yeah, it's I, really, really covers the gamut. I have to say, as someone who's been to, as you know, my, my great share of uh, not conferences, but really, you know, investor related seminars across the United States for the past 10, 12 years. This is a, I, I think IMN, for those of you who have not been and who are listening, is, is a real, step above. This is not your, uh, you know, no, no, uh, I'm not trying to disparage what real estate investment clubs do or what, you know, the guru class does across the United States, but this is different. This is um, really, I think you would say, Jack, sort of a, well, look, everybody's walking around, first of all, in, in jackets and, and, and suits. And so that alone sort of, you know, sort of sets a tone of professionalism. And at least the investors that I spoke with, Jack, um, I think there are some really fine operators there, folks who are obviously have scaled their operations, um, uh, you know, and so for those who might be trying to get to that class, um, I would highly recommend IMN. This was uh, a really top-notch event. Uh, They took up two full ballrooms to give you an idea of how many people were there. So one floor was just exhibits and booths of, uh, of all the vendors. And there were a ton. And then an entire ballroom where they would have um, full sessions and then a lot of breakout sessions as well, which I know you were a part of and Fred was a part of too, Jack. So um, I was hoping that we could talk about just that, you know, like what you guys learned there. You know, what did you think we're obviously in an interesting economic times, Jack, where there appears to be some folks on the sidelines. Talked to a couple of guys that were like just pencils down. You know, we've we're, we've consolidated, we've sold off, uh, you know, some non-performing assets, and then we were talking to folks, Jack. It felt like full steam ahead. You know, we're buying mm-hmm. five thousand lots here, and we're buying up land, and you know, it was it, there was no indication of any economic, you know, uh, turmoil whatsoever. So, what what was your take? 
Yeah, so like the you know the uh, the optimism that you tease me about each episode comes you know a lot of it comes from listening to those folks in that room because the the people who come to those conferences are still very very bullish on American real estate for the long right. term, and so you have folks who you know I feel like a lot of the optimism or pessimism that someone expresses has to do with the uh, the time frame that they're thinking about like you know over the course of the next twelve months or the over the course of the next twelve or ten years, right. and um, you know the the they have these kickoff panels. Um, by the way, we're not associated with IMN in any way. We get no kickback. It's just a conference that we always go to because I always get tremendous value out of it. So, yeah. you know, since we get tremendous value out of it, it's something that we wanted to talk to to everybody who listens here about. Um, but uh, they kick it off with uh, three or four keynote panels on just kind of the state of the market. Um, they have a panel of uh, of lo- very large lenders uh, that my partner Fred was uh, was one of the panelists on, mm-hmm. um, and the, a lot of a lot of economists. And then, as you mentioned, breakout sessions that uh, dig in more operationally or sp- to specific topics: the fix and flip market, um, you know, real you know, property management operations, stuff like that. Um, so anyway, the 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 kind of the larger panels that have that tend to have more economist types on it, right? Because people are trying to get what's the macro view. The mm-hmm. you know the, the first panel, God, just like there's five panelists, they're all super smart folks, like highly vested in, you know, in making decisions about how to invest capital on a going forward basis. But they're not married to SFR in any way, like necessarily. And so, but the the optimism that they all express with respect to American real estate and the undersupply of particularly the affordable segment of the market, um, you know, I don't, there's not a whole lot of folks saying we're under undersupplied in luxury, but in the affordable component, the you know uh, that that tailwind is something that I think is really driving a tremendous amount of of uh, investor interest still on a going forward basis, and I think the conversation ends up being not is residential real estate a good place to invest or not? Everyone agrees with that. It's how do you get involved right now with interest rates as high as they are? That was and the guy. How do you make the numbers work right now? Can you carry negative leverage at all? Can you carry it for a short period of time? Is carrying it for two years too long? Those are really the conversations that are being had there. So it's a you know a little bit more nuanced, um, nuanced conversation about how to be how to invest in the SFR asset class or in the residential uh, single family asset class. What was your takeaway with that? With with specifically with regards to that, Jack? Yeah, um, there are. Uh, I think that there is uh, still some concern about low, you know, obviously there's concern about low transaction activity and there's a lot of vendors in the room. There's all the lenders in the room. So that issue specifically hurts them more. Um, everyone in that, I think everyone at that conference likes the asset class is very pleased with how it's performed, even in some stress tested environments and thinks that relative to other uh, real estate asset classes that, Single family is one of the most, if not the most, uh, resilient in a downturn environment. So everyone feels like comfortable that it's a safe place to be. Um, and so the conversation right now, I think, are more focused around um, shifting your pipeline to you know how how many rentals are you going to add versus how much are you going to be flipping or trading. Um, the build to rent is still very much a, a big topic there, yes. yep. though. That conversation really tends to dig into the issue of negative leverage, right? Where 
you're buying, you're still, th those assets are still trading at a six cap, say, just, you know, th that's a very broad brush, right? But like, sure. you know, those assets are still trading at a six cap and the debt's at a seven, seven and a half. And those deals are still getting done. I mean, less, like last year, there were no transactions in that category happening. It was like that market came to a standstill. Mm -hmm. But those have started to happen again. Uh, some lenders have gotten creative. If, if the equity... If the if the if the equity is interested in buying those houses, and is comfortable that they are not going to get very much of a current return for a couple years, but that they're going to make it up on the back end through long term rent growth because we've got you know a, an increasing household formation and we're undersupplied in housing, you can create you know you can you can create a pro, ten year pro forma and look yourself in the eye you know with a straight face and say. Hey, yeah, I'm not going to get paid very well for the first couple of years, but we're going to continue to have rent growth over the course of the next 10 years. We're going to have, an, if you're concerned about inflation, this is the place to be. Yeah. And so we're going to make it up on the back end. And so uh, is the conversation there, Jack, when you speak of equity, if uh, so, we, we spoke with Alex, uh, who, will appear on on a, who will appear on an episode. I'm looking forward to everyone to listen to that. Uh, anyway. Um, is the conversation there if you're forming a fund or if you're going out to equity partners, LP partners, and how do you how do you have that discussion? Hey, uh, we need your money, but you're not going to get any returns for the first few years. Yeah, I think I think it's that conversation of you know how American housing is a great place to be. The the current returns aren't great right now, so we're not going to use very much. I'm sorry, the current returns are fine, but the debt is really expensive right now. Mm. But we want to own assets for the long term, and so if you believe in that in that fundamental pitch, and you believe in an operator's ability to find good deals, mm -hmm. then you don't want to you know you, you can buy assets right now don't use as much leverage right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like if the leverage is expensive right now, don't, just don't use as much of it so that you can continue to produce a, a, a dividend to your, um, to your investors. So can and I then talk yeah, about that long-term, hey, we're undersupplied, we're buying it at, or, you know, at replacement cost. Like if anything is gonna go up, we're gonna go up and we're really downside protected in this asset class. I feel like that's what equity investors are accentuating right now is that this is a low risk thing over the course of the next 10 years and mm. it's got inflation an inflation hedge to it. And the combination of those two things, right? Like in an environment right now where people aren't really sure if inflation's going to get like it's coming down but it's not yet under fully under control and if you're concerned about inflation over the long term, um residential real estate with a annual mark to market lease opportunity like we have in single family right we're not signing 10 year leases we're signing annual leases so we get to retrade that rent every year is a is a really nice profile to invest in right now yeah so the only fly in the ointment there would be not uh, would be stagnant rents yeah yeah if if we have stagnant rents but if you but if you're concerned about inflation then rents, you know, just have historically really gone lockstep with inflation. So they're just a, a great inflation hedge there. I think the fly in the ointment is a recession. The fly in the ointment is your view on whether we're going to have a recession next year and how bad it's going to be and what that does to rents, what that does to vacancy rates. So there are certainly people who are with pencils down until the R word gets off of the Wall Street Journal front page. Yeah. Um, 
but as of and and there's others who were like, hey, yeah, we're gonna, you know, they're gonna soft land this, or it's gonna be a mild recession, and I'm investing over the ten year term anyway. So again, it goes back to that, you know, that um, that time frame of your investment horizon sure. as to whether um, whether you know you're really concerned, whether you think that recession, whether you think a potential recession makes it a bad time to buy or not, right? Because you can't go back and once you, if you sit on the sidelines and go play golf for the next year, you can't, you know, put your sticks away and then all of a sudden buy a bunch, you know, put a years of work back in, right? Like you're just not going to have bought those houses. Right. So um, there is an operational constraint to sitting on the sidelines, right? That you'll, you'll own less 10 years from now if you do nothing right now, tomorrow. I have to say, you know, spoke with a lot of investors. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it was my first time at IMN. Um, you know, we had our, we had a Dominion booth there, financial Dominion financial booth there. So we spoke with a lot of folks and I thought the, the general sentiment, as you sort of read the tea leaves while speaking with folks, it was this sort of, Hey, we're cautious, man, but we're, uh, but, but we're really taking a hard look at the numbers and how, and how, how to structure these things. But we're, it was full steam ahead for, for mostly everyone that we spoke with. Yeah, there's some there's some like uh, you know, there's some bias to like who shows up to a conference, right? Like the guy who's playing golf is not going to bother showing up to that conference. So everyone's yeah. there because they're active. They want to see where the cheapest debt is, right? Like if you need debt right now, you want to be at that conference because every lender in there under the sun is at that mm, place. Sure is. Uh, and you want to, you know, be able to compare notes with other operators to make sure that you're not the idiot that like, you know, is missing something that everybody else, you know, understands to be true. Uh, and that's what I've always gotten out of like the the best thing that I've always gotten out of that conference is just talking to people at the bar, right? Like the 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 sessions are good, and there's some really sharp people on there. Some sessions are better than others, right? You have some sessions where people are just talking their book and like pitching, basically, which is you know those are lame. You, you leave those after the first ten minutes. But um, but like other sessions have like a, a lot of high quality content. There's really you know the folks on the panel are actually you know giving their perspective and and make have you know you have like a nuanced conversation uh and then the bar is like you know the bar and the happy hours and the networking hours like that's where you really get the opportunity to just talk to folks in different segments get their take on things you know get a couple drinks in them and ask them what they're really concerned about right like that's where you get the really interesting content is after a couple you know a couple vodka sodas so <laughs> that's that's what we always go for is you know is just to see like hey which way is the wind blowing how are people feeling like you know can i get some honest feedback right like and not just whatever's being printed in the media or whatever's on people's social media pages right shout out to amanda at Stuart title for applying us all with uh, great bourbon by the way <laughs> Great. It's always much appreciated. Always yeah, much appreciated. Exactly. She was awesome. Um, so in those in those more private conversations, Jack, any any takeaways from there? Anything that you were like, oh, wait a minute. Can you um, think of anything? Yeah. Yeah, I think that um there are a fair number of operators who are who have pivoted to more revenue um monetization, I'd say, in the current <laughs> You know, you know in that? the near term, yeah, like they're you know they're flipping more, they're wholesaling more, they're they're shifted their business to more fee income based rather than uh, rather than adding assets and um, you know and adding a lot of leverage, right? Like like not a ton. I would say it's been a shift a, a little bit away from building your rental portfolio right now as the cost of debt has gone up. Mm -hmm. um, 
but a, I think a confidence in real estate values enough that flipping feels, feels much better. I mean, I had some honest conversations with some operators who were talking, who were, who were big flippers, crushed it in 2021, right? Like knocked it out of the park in 2021 and then gave a chunk back in 2022. Now, they didn't give it all back. They didn't give anywhere close to all of it back, right? Like if you if you blend those two years together, they had two great years. But it was just, you know, it was a grand slam in 2021 and then, you know, and then you get, you know, and then you struck out all 2022. Uh and so they may have actually lost money in 2022 and their things are starting to stabilize, but nothing's easy. And so um that was a that's a common story, I think, where people are just they're giving back a little bit of profits from from that 2022 heyday, and it, you know the and and but they want to keep the shop going because they like this business and they're they're still good at it. Uh, it's just the market, you know, knocked their legs out from under them in 2022 and early 2023. But now, as it's gotten harder, it's gotten less competitive. Yes, a little bit more seller capitulation, and so the cracks you know in the market are starting to happen and people are starting to see opportunities like no yes. one's like dude i'm having a blast buying you know blind, buying a ton of great deals but they're starting to find stuff again yes. and so for the folks who are still in there still got their their ear to the ground um i hear that I, I, that that's that's like i've heard that enough that i'm like yeah that's not just in like and we're seeing that in our backyard too but yeah. that feels like a trend like that feels like a thing well you mentioned on a previous episode how here in baltimore or maryland we should say that that uh, when you show up to an auction there's maybe less people at the auction and even maybe less people bidding at the auction and while it while it while it's not a you know a seismic shift you can at least see the, you know, maybe a, a small trend forming. And, and I heard the same thing uh, talking with folks at IMN as well, Jack, that like, yeah, like, maybe we're starting to see a little capitulation. Maybe we're starting to hit a double instead of all singles all the time. Uh, nobody, it didn't sound to me like anybody was hitting home runs, Jack, or, um, but, but they are starting to see a small shift in, in their markets in terms of competition, yeah. in terms of uh, uh, transactions, and in terms of uh, abilities to find better deals. I, th I think that lenders, the other thing my takeaway was that I th lenders are, uh, they, again, had a phenomenal 2021, mm. uh, a, a challenging 2022 because of a, you know, an increasing interest rate environment. Uh, and so like, yeah, you know, it's kind of same, same story from a profitability point of view. And then 2023, uh, you haven't you st I guess it's kind of it's kind of a parallel story where there's a lot of folks who are operating at uh break even or barely or you know, like a little bit profitable but not like again not not great um they're they're keeping the lights on with the hope that enough competition is going to uh fall out and enough transaction volume is going to start picking up that it's worth it to work here for now 18 months plus without making any money mm -hmm. uh so or you know making less money uh so um i think that that seems to be a little bit of a trend amongst lenders as well again high cost of capital affects them as much as you know their customers right they're they're not they're not most lenders are op are, are lending much of other people's money you know they put some of theirs in with a bunch of other people's and that that other people's money has gotten really expensive so uh a lot of lenders are are you know running running shops that are highly levered right Them, themselves mm -hmm. that are they're lending a lot of other people's money so they've it's been harder for them to 
make money on what's left over mm-hmm. after the other people uh, take theirs. So I feel like that's a that's been a trend uh, trend too. And then, man, there was a ton of vendors this time as well. I think that like an uptick, I would say, in the amount of vendors at the conference itself. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, which I took as uh, I took as I would think it's got to be a tough time to be a vendor right now because like right like difficult environment, lower transaction volumes. People are you know people you know. They don't. They don't take on a lot of. They don't sign a whole lot of new long-term contracts with with vendors and try. You know, try a bunch of new things in when they're tightening. When they're trying to also tighten their belt. Now, if you're if you're an off a vendor who can offer efficiency and uh, you know decreasing costs, people are are certainly going to be interested in that kind of thing. Um, and there's um you know there's a lot of prop tech that I was going to ask you. I know you walked the floor and you even, I, I saw that you had a chance to speak with uh, a few vendors as well. Yeah. Talk about the ones that you were particularly moved by, uh, you know, in, in what they were doing. Yeah. I think that the, you know, the, the conversations with vendors, the, the ones that were, I think, you know, interesting, um, or, you know, felt like they were like, you know, had still had some momentum were those that were focused around efficiencies and operations and decreasing costs generally, right? Like mm-hmm. trying to get that, those expenses down for their customers. Anyone in particular? Um, no, I mean, there's all, all kinds of, you know, depending on, depending on your particular need and your market. I mean, I think that, you know, everyone in that room certainly has customers. So there's, they're fulfilling needs for, um, for lots of different folks. But uh, so not, not, nothing like that, like, was like, oh yeah, everyone was like moving towards this guy. Um, a lot of, ven- a lot of new vendors and prop tech companies, uh, came out of the 2021 timeframe as well, right? Like that was like the heyday for venture capital, Silicon Valley, um, in, you know, and private equity, really venture capital getting into, um, the tech space for real estate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there was a ton of new companies that were formed during that period of time. And those folks are, you know, they, we haven't, we've started to see the weaker of those folks fold and just kind of like fade out into the distance. But it's still a very tough operating environment for that kind of company. And if they have not yet reached profitability, they're running out of time because mm-hmm. they're running out of cash, right? So like if you, you know, if you built it on the come and then you were expecting 2021 levels of activity to continue to happen, well, it, it has been the opposite, right? It has been just like down, down, down in terms of transaction volumes. <clears throat> so that's made it for a very challenging environment for prop hit its pro forma and if it if they haven't yet reached profitability if you go back out into the venture capital market right now and try to raise more money you're you're taking a down round like the valuation that you're going to get on this next on this next deal this next uh, round of fundraising is going to be much lower valuation often much lower valuation than what it was 2 years ago and, uh, you know, then that leads to a whole bunch of problems with like, you know, what do you tell your existing investors? How much money can you raise? And at what valuation? Like, is there, you know, at what point do you just throw in the towel and say, yeah. hey, we gave it a good, you know, we gave it a good run, but I'm going to go work on something else. Mm-hmm. So um, last question with regards to sort of the overall, uh, any surprises, any, any surprise takeaways, anything that you were like, oh, wow, that's, that's definitely something I wasn't considering before I came here. I didn't think it would be as well attended as it was. It was well um, attended. Yeah. So uh, because I thought that there would be folks who were just kind of like, 
keep putting their heads down a little bit more. So I think that, and I wonder, you know, I wonder if the conference was 45 days ago, 60 days ago, would it have been as well attended? Mm. Because certainly the drop in mortgage rates over the past two, three weeks here have injected a little bit of optimism uh, into the room, I think, uh, than would have been there 30 days ago. And so I feel people are getting a little giddy. They're getting, they're a little like, you know, wiping their brow and, and, and hope, you know, think, you know, hoping and praying that the, that this is just the start of a continued decline in mortgage rates, which would be good for the entire industry, particularly from a transaction volume point of view. So, um, I guess I attributed to that level of activity and the level of optimism, frankly, to the recent news about mortgage rates. Um, and again, like I said, I wonder what I wonder if it would have been nearly as optimistic forty five days ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I know you sat on a panel, and it was regarding sort of the state of DSCR. Yeah. So for the uh, for those of you listening who are aren't familiar, which I'd be shocked if there's many, but uh, you know we write a lot of DSCR loans here at uh, Dominion Jack, and so uh, you've you've watched that. Um, that product form and grow over the last few years. And so what, what was your takeaways there in, in terms of uh, the state of DSCR loans? Yeah, we had a, we had a really good conversation. I, I, had a, I was lucky to be on a great panel of a panelist. Uh, Gene Clark at Arch West was the moderator. Uh, Constructive Capital was on my panel. RCN was on my panel. Um, and uh, another large note buyer um, uh, was, on, uh, was on the panel as well. And they, um, we, we talked a lot about just kind of like the state of the market right now in terms of where interest rates are, the, you know, where, where the securitization market is for DSCR right now and what that means for borrowers on a going forward point of view. Uh, and just kind of, you know, everyone look, tried to look into their crystal ball a little bit as to talk about where they thought that the risks and the opportunities were. Um, I think something that something that we all agreed on was that the um we've seen a little bit more um we've seen a little bit more i guess like uh aggression from the securitization market uh as rates have started to come down a little bit credit spreads in uh non QM securitizations have started to come down a little bit and frankly mortgage buyers mortgage lenders are are trying to keep volumes up and so DSCR has been a kind of a bright spot of it's really new market share right for the non-qm market they really the bank you know f- five years ago banks really owned this business and i think the, the dscr market has taken a lot of market share away from the local uh the local lenders and credit unions yeah uh, because the rates became much more competitive and as the banks got hurt six months ago market share has come towards dscr lenders as the mortgage broker market has gotten educated on non-QM products, including DSCR, the distribution mechanism for DSCR loans has become much broader, right? It, even two years ago, it was really a product mostly originated by private lenders. But as the broker community, the resi consumer, residential consumer mortgage broker community has gotten educated and, and been looking for volume, they um, have also now brought in a lot of product brought, you know hmm. originated a lot of loans um and so feels like we got, get calls from brokers every day 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so they're only selling to the that securitization bid, right? Like they don't have the benefit of being able to work directly with insurance companies like we do, for example. So the rates are a little tend to be a little bit higher for the broker community. But yeah. you know, if you're looking for a solution and you know your guy, you call your guy who did your house, right? Who did your house mortgage at three percent two years ago. Right. And he tells you that the the you know that the DSCR rates in nine percent, you believe him, right? Because he got you three. So he's just, you know, he's the one who's in touch with the market. He must be my low cost provider. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So a lot of product comes, you know, gets originated that way. Because I you just know, have to stop you right there, Jack, and just say it is not nine percent for those of you who might be not, looking for no, a DSCR loan. You could do much better. Yeah, it's been great. We've we've now tipped into the sevens for the first time in months, which is I don't know. Oh, yeah. It feels good. I've been writing many loans in that seven and seven and a few eights to seven and a half. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm nervous to. Uh, I feel like I, I want to like just do some refis right now because I'm I'm nervous that it's going to go back up. But you know, we'll see. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to the panel. So um, the uh, we were talking about just how, you know how that market has evolved, right? And uh, there's a there's a lot more requests for with with these higher interest rates that we've experienced the past three four months. Um, there's a lot more requests for low DSCR, like sub 1.0 DSCR, or even as low as 0.75 DSCR yeah. mm-hmm. um, loans, because with higher interest rates, it's tougher to pencil. And I think investors are more are having harder access to get liquidity. And so the DSCR loan is a, an easier loan to, to get to the table quickly. Um, you know, we can close that in like three weeks, 30 days. And so it's it's an easy button, so to speak, if you've got equity in your real estate for liquidity. And so uh, we've seen uh, an uptick, I think, over the past 60 days in those lower DSCR requests and what that means, right? So we had a conversation about what that means. Is that a good thing? Is that a canary in the coal mine for distress, frankly? Is, or is, is, is DSCR originated over the past 60, 90 days, the new subprime investor you know, loans? And we're going to see all this stuff back at the courthouse three, four years from now. So we, we talked about all those kind of issues. Well, can I um, slow you down there a little bit? Because yeah, yeah, sure. it, it feels like, look, if we were talking uh, a few years ago, it was, it was the ratio of one to 1.25. And I don't think that anyone was ever going to break out of that box. You know, that the, felt comfortable. It's still 1.2 plus. Like in the insurance companies still want the 1.2 plus. If you want that good pricing, you need to be in the 1.2 plus range. What's all the talk though of like, oh, you know, oh, we've got some, we've got some buyers who might be willing to go less, you know, like it feels to me like the, because of the, maybe the economic, the economics of the deal, mm, let's, let's see about like maybe doing a sub one. You know, I don't think we would have been having that conversation a few years ago. No, I, we, we, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have, we couldn't have, um, the, but, but the, you know, the lenders have gotten more aggressive, frankly. I was looking at this. I was nerding out uh, a couple weeks ago. There's right. this company called DVO1, if you can imagine. If there is a there's a company called DVO1, and they look at um, they look at all the remittance reports, which is the reports that the securitization trustees publish that shows the performance of each securitization. Got and it. you can get your hand on these reports. And Which is essentially like an aggregation of, of the loans. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you yeah. can see all the loan performance on a securitization by securitization basis. And then they split it apart based off of the attributes of those loans and try to tell you as a securitization investor, you know, 
geography matters in this category and FICO matters in this category and LTV matters in this category. And like, here's the relative weights of each of those factors so that you can kind of, right? Like the idea is to make better pricing models, right? So that you can, so that you can price risk more appropriately. And so they really nerd out on the quantitative side on, on, on these remittance reports. And when you break apart the non-QM securitizations and you look, we have seen an uptick over the past 60, 90 days in uh, non-QM securitization delinquency rates. Very, mm. very small, a, a small uptick, but like a noticeable, a small but noticeable uptick. Sure. But when you break it apart by type, you know, whether that's uh, a bank statement loan or DSCR or... Um, the other kinds of non-QM, you know, uh, the other kinds of non-QM uh, loans. DSCR is the best performing of the non-QM loans, and so as product offerings have gotten more aggressive over the past, a little bit more aggressive over the past couple of years. One of the reasons they have is because DSCR performance has been so strong, and it right. remains the strongest of the non-QM category. And so lenders feel that they're getting paid well for the very low risk that they're taking. And so they've expanded the box a little bit. Yeah. yeah so the yeah. 1.2 lender, you know, some of the 1.2 securitization lenders went to 1.0 and then those guys said, hey, everything looks still looks good. Let's drop it to 0.9. Let's drop it to 0.75 <laughs> um, and put some LTV overlays on it a little bit, but, you know, to mitigate their risk. But they, they're creepily, you know, they're, 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 they're creeping and getting a little bit more aggressive. And, you know, who knows? We'll see, right? Only time will tell what, when they've gone too far, but certainly, right? That's human nature. They will go too far and be a little bit too aggressive at some yeah. point. But uh, hopefully, you know, we don't kill the golden goose here and originate a bunch of crap loans and then pricing goes up for everybody. So that's what the industry wants to avoid. Is this a category, Jack, where you can only have so much... Um diversification in what a DSCR loan can be or or do we find new products coming along like are, are is there any are there any uh you know note buyers out there who are writing guidelines that that feel like oh that's sort of a new product I think on the DSCR side because all of those end up or most of those end up in securitization there's relative conformity um because you want the thing is with the 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 DSCR loans, the loan buyer wants to put those into a securitization and they want to get that securitization rated because once they get that securitization rated, they get better pricing execution. Mm -hmm. And so if they write a bunch of like new creative stuff, the securitization, um, I'm sorry, the rating agencies, the rating agencies will not give them the rating uh, on, on those loans or say like, hey, these need to be excluded for, for if you want a rating from us. So the rating agencies tend to be like the guardrails around new product development, at least in the rated securitization space um, or rated, you know, for rated products, which you know, DSCR, that's, that's where you get your best, that's where you get your best secondary market execution. Mm -hmm. um, private lenders though, have certainly been doing that. Uh, there was a panel after mine that talked about more like the commercial uh, loan structures like non-recourse portfolio loans, you know, like the $10 million non-recourse, you know, you're buying build to rent, you're buying build to rent properties, or you're doing a refinance of your thousand unit portfolio in Columbus, and you don't want to sign personally. And so you, you get, uh, you can get a loan from a, a more commercial style lender. And those folks have become 
more creative in their structures to accommodate the higher interest rate environment Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, incorporating interest rate caps to help make the DSCRs work on those loans because they tend to be non-recourse. So they can't write a 1.0 DSCR. Like it must be at least 1.2 because they get tossed the keys if the deal sure. doesn't work out. Right. Um, and like with some like a little bit longer term, like th- you know two or three year bridge loan structures, we've seen that kind of creativity in those balance sheet lenders um, particularly in like the larger and the larger size balance sheet lenders, um, that's where we're seeing kind of the, the I would say that that's the front edge of product development. Right Interesting. Now. I was thinking more along the lines of like, you know, calls that we get here from from folks that we might not be able to help. Like I've got uh, you know a twelve unit deal. Uh, I've got you know stuff that just doesn't fit the box. And I'm wondering if there's any talk amongst like you know how do we capture that business too. You know, the, because there's yeah, a lot the, of that. I mean, there's a there's just a ton of that stuff. Yeah, the the multi like the 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 you know small multifamily is a sure. relatively under under supply or underserved market, I'd say, because it's the in this it's this in between where it doesn't fit into the rating agencies' models of a DSCR loan, so they don't want to. So you don't get very good pricing. Uh, so you know, so you, so you don't get the best pricing because of the rated securitizations. But then if it's but you can also go Freddie Mac multifamily loan, right? But no one really wants to work on a, a $600,000. Like Freddie Mac, you know, Freddie Mac's originators don't really want to work on a $600,000 loan. So you get stuck in this no man's land yeah. where if you if someone's willing to do that, they're going to charge you for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get, you get higher pricing for it. Uh, and yeah, that's an issue, right? Like it should, and it should translate to lower asset values, right? In that middle ground, right? And that's, 12, you know, or call it 11 to, you know, 11 to 30 units are tougher to finance because they just don't fit in any, anyone's fat. They're not, they're no one's fastball. And so you'll find folk and banks, frankly, are like the ones who they're, they're the balance sheets that have financed those. Um, and view it as, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I get to charge an extra 50, 75 basis points. And it's really that, you know, it should be a DSCR loan or it should be a, uh, a Freddie Mac multifamily loan, but it doesn't really fit in either bucket. So I get to charge you an extra 75 points and the bank feels good, right? About, about doing that. So that, that area of the business has been really kind of like left behind a little bit as banks have become more reluctant to lend on commercial real estate including residential multifamily. And so um, I do think that that middle ground there is the, they're the ones that are like on, on a relative basis, still the most underserved. Do you see that as an opportunity for? for I see it as an opportunity for banks yeah, <laughs> to like yeah. to write some really high quality CRE paper, but they're the only, you know, frankly, they're the only ones with the balance sheets and the cost of capital to be able to, to serve that market right now. Like right. your, your private lender market, like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it for you. You know, right. I'll do it for you at 12%, but like, no one wants to hear that. Right. They want to, they want an 8% loan because that's the appropriate pricing, frankly. Right. Like that's what it should cost sure. given that risk. Um, but the banks are the only ones who really still have the cost of capital and the, and a small enough, and, and frankly, a distribution network, right. They're, they're loan officers. They have loan officers who can do a $700,000 loan profitably. Um, it's a very local business, though. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're not, you're not, exactly. You're not taking uh, deals from all over the country there. Yeah. 
you could, you could, I could, you could see a, someone coming in and being like, Hey, I'm going to go take this, right? Like it's, it's a list that you can pull off the public record, but you'd, you know, it's the kind of thing where you'd go raise $500 million of equity and say, I'm putting together a program and we're going to go do a securitization. I'm going to do enough of this that we're going to do our own securitization of this product. Um, and no one's, you know, I don't, to, to my knowledge, please, you know, if, if someone knows about a lender that I don't know about, um, who this is their fastball, uh, this kind of like, you know, 10 to 30 unit multifamily, you know, hit us up in the comments and shoot me an email. Uh, but uh, I don't know of anybody who's really stepped up to try to own that space. We'll uh, look forward to the Jack Bevere business plan on that space by episode yes, uh, 25. Hey, yeah. Yes, speaking of which, we're raising a new fund. It's about <laughs> 10 to 30 unit multifamily. News if anybody flash. wants to invest in our new fund, we just decided to do it three seconds ago. <laughs> It's going to be a great opportunity. It's a very underserved market. I just gave you my whole thesis. And, and it was all facts. <laughs> so any other takeaways? Uh, and then and I want to shift to one last thing. It might be a little bit of a curveball for you if you, if you knew nothing about it. But um, any other takeaways from the panel? DSCR um, panel? Yeah, I mean, a point that I made that I thought landed well was um, because the DSCR market is still... Uh, there's maybe like 10, maybe 15 loan buyers, and each of them have their own opinions of underwriting guidelines. Oh, they do. They, uh, yeah, everyone's everyone's different. There's very little conformity there. Um, the, it that re- and and at different points in time, they are more or less aggressive than mm-hmm. each other, and and it moves right. Like depending on the news or depending how the you know the the head of investment committee felt the week before, uh, the the pricing. For each of those loan buyers, moves over time, as do their guidelines. And so, if you if a borrower is working with a particular originator, and that originator is tied to one source of capital, you're only getting a look at one of those fifteen programs, yeah, one of those ten that, programs. Can I break that down a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, sure. so if we get a call from an investor who wants to do, you know. I've got I got 15 units. I want to put it all into one loan, DSCR loan. We have access to how many no buyers, Jack? Ten. We have ten, like ten MLPAs in place. Yeah. So ten, ten, ten folks that we can throw that loan out to, and chances are that we know, you know, before we get the loan, which one's probably going to be the best, uh, which one or two will be the the best fit. However, what Jack is saying is that. There are originators out there who have access to only one note yeah, buyer. Yeah, one or two of those, yeah. And if the guidelines for that note buyer are rigid, that's a box that you're either going to fit or you're not. And and so I think what you're saying is that um, – go ahead and finish the point. So Yes, exactly. So like if you're you – know, if you go to your guy and he's got access to one program – and you're slightly outside of that guy's fastball, well, you're going to get charged a bunch more for the fact that you're a 1.18 DSCR, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or whatever the case is, or your FICO is 715 instead of 725. And so um, what we, the way we've set it up is that we've, we work with 
basically the entire market. And so when a borrower comes to us and gives us their scenario, we plug that into basically a huge Excel spreadsheet, which aggregates all of the guidelines and all of the pricing for all 10 of those loan buyers and spits out, hey, at, at 75% LTV, you should go with this program. At 70% LTV, you should go with this program and here's pricing. At 65% LTV, you should go with this program and here's pricing. So we give borrowers, it's basically an, a best execution model of figuring out where that situation for that particular property it fits best to give the borrower the best pricing. And it may be the case that you come to us with four properties and we put you into three different programs because it's going to save you a quarter point on the rate for 30 years to split it apart. And it, you know, even with some additional, uh, closing costs, it actually makes, you know, that makes good sense. And we'll, and that's what our loan officers do. They counsel folks on like, Hey, we should split this up, go to, you know, two with this program, one with this other guy. Um, and, and, and then go get you the best execution on that. And so if you're not, you know, so that, that's like a really important thing to do in such a heterogeneous market, right? In such a heterogeneous product, it's important to get a survey of the entire market, which in the past, if you were going to, or not in the past, but if you're going to, which is kind of serves the function of a mortgage broker, yeah. but who, who may hopefully is working with multiple, uh, buyers, but the mortgage brokers don't have access to the insurance company market because they're not selling the loan. They're placing it to somebody. So they only get access to the securitization products, the, 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 the secondary mortgage market products. They don't get access to the balance sheet lenders, the insurance companies that are keeping this stuff on balance sheet. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of like, right. Like, so we're kind of like the best of both worlds in that when you can get a best execution quote from us, you know that you're getting the best that the, the entire market has to offer at that given point in time for your given scenario. And since we're selling directly, you don't have to work, you don't have to pay for a middleman either. And so that's that's been our value proposition. That's why we do DSCR. You know, our, our, our core business has always been fix and flip. We added DSCR because there was so much overlap between those two products. But we built our DSCR program to be a to be that best execution model so that we knew that we were always promising the best that the market had to offer at any point in time. Yeah. And the only way that you can do that is is by having that breadth of buyers who right. yeah, you it would be impossible to be a top-notch originator if you didn't have access to all of the buyers in the market for that, for the DSCR product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so last thing in the time that we have left, and we'll just take a couple minutes with this. So I don't want to blow your mind here, but you know, Fred sat on a shark tank. Uh, oh, how'd it go? I didn't get to see it. Oh, you missed something. It, you know, honestly, it was really interesting. They had two different scenarios. Did you happen to see the case studies by any chance? Oh, no. I asked Fred, uh, I guess he may have been on the plane when I uh, shot him a text, but uh, so they basically came out with two scenarios. There were two guys there who had portfolios, Jack, that they wanted to sell. And the one that stuck out to me uh, that I found interesting was uh, 255 properties, single family properties in South Bend, Indiana, um, fairly close to Notre Dame. However, you wouldn't call this a student rental portfolio. Like a, a couple of them may have fallen into that category, Jack, but not all of them. So it was $29 million asking price for 255 single family residences. I'm just going to give you like the things that I remember of this. Mm -hmm. um, they were all, the average build, uh, the average build was 1940. 85 grand a unit. 
roughly. Okay. <laughs> He's already doing the math. I know where this and is going. So, so uh, the, uh, they, they, uh, the company who owned the portfolio had put in about 1.5 million in CapEx. And what I got out of it was it was mostly roofs. Um, a lot of the properties had new roofs. And maybe uh, a little bit of a turnover, you know, we, the place turned over and we, we put on some countertops and I didn't get the sense that anybody, there was any full gut rehabs in these things. Though, if you listen to this guy, these places were all bulletproof, right? The question was, you know, he was obviously looking to sell it, you know, outright. And I think, you know, I, I don't know the numbers. I think it was like a seven cap that uh i guess they were projecting on the mm -hmm. you know for that sale price and so the what question was, was the average rent uh, 1200 bucks oh, okay. something like okay. yeah something okay. like that i, I was maybe a thousand hmm. um i know you're gonna ask me all the questions that the sharks asked that i didn't take notes on but um so fred uh fred was kind of sat back and listened and the guy who they were dubbing mr wonderful sitting right next to fred gave the following offer and he was very fast. I mean, jumped right in with an offer. And the offer was, okay, we're not going to buy this thing outright, but we'll, we'll become a 50, 50 partner with you on it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't remember the terms of the deal, but if in a scenario like that, I was, I was really shocked to see the guy step up so quickly and say, yeah, we'll do, we'll do 50, 50. We'll give you this loan. Uh, you know, we'll hold the properties for another five years. We'll peel off the ones that are crap right now and, and maybe do a little revenue monetization, as you like to say. Um, and so that, that was one of the offers that was, that was, that came across. And I, I think Fred sort of had this look on his face, like, mm, no, I wouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> and so, so can you think of any scenario where that might be an interesting offer to get to jump in bed with this with this uh, 255 properties? I mean, I think that I get where the guy's coming from, right? Like because the operator is such in, in that in that price point, right? $85,000 house built in 1940s, $1,200 rents like that's like an operationally intensive business. Yes. Um, and so like, you know, you get tired after a while and managing the expense ratio is like the entire ball game uh and and your tenancy your tenancy duration tough your tenancy duration is like you know the x factor right like do you have do you have two to three year tenancy duration or do you have five plus year tenancy duration and like if i ask you those questions i know how the, i know what the expense ratio is going to be like i know right. I, I got a good sense of it right so like it's a, it's a good tell right it's a good question it's a good structure to ask the guy because if he's not interested in in staying in, on the ride with you, well, I think you know you you know everything you need to know about how difficult it is to operate those old houses in that you know affordable market because uh, that can be a taxing enterprise and and three hundred is just enough to not be able to really afford a full team behind you where you're yeah. still getting like a lot of calls. Like it's you're you're in, you're in no man's land, right? Like once you get five six hundred, you can afford a real professionals top notch like real people right you can get like real people behind you at 300 it's like you with some assistance and like if that guy is not willing to like go along for the ride like you're like dude i'm just inheriting your headaches right so, so i feel couple like it's a more. good it's the right it's the right structure to figure out to, to learn a lot about what you can't ask right you know what i mean so 
what what I find what I thought was interesting about it was I did sense that the guy who was selling the portfolio seemed um, really knew his stuff, but he did he did seem a little tired, tired, and yeah, a little bit. And and these houses were not homogenous, Jack. They were like you know there was like a mansion, you know, like we would see up in Roland Park, and then there was like the little Rambler that you'd see over in Essex, and so. Um, I think the 50-50 deal was still out there, but the guy was, I don't know if he was being tongue-in-cheek or if he was actually really serious about it. Fred did come in at the very end with an offer. <laughs> what did he say? I'll paraphrase. He, he basically came in with the Gordon Gecko Wall Street offer, and it was like, I would take it and sell it all. I would sell it for the price of the parts. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start with, a, start with the, you know, the crappy ones that you know you don't want anyway. Get rid of all of those, and then just basically just make, start make your life them, better over time. Yeah, just start but, peeling them off one by one and sell the whole damn thing. If there's a spread, right? Like if these, you know, if these are like one thirty five ARV or whatever, and you're offering me a great deal here at eighty five grand because you know it's a good cap rate, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, just get in there and just start selling them off. Right, it, and that's also that's a tough price point, right? Like one thirty five houses. There's, that's the that's the price point where you sell it three times to an FHA buyer before it sells, you know, oh, yeah. before it actually goes to closing. So like that's a it's a heavy lift, even yeah. you know, even even doing it that way. I will say there this: there is a spread. To sit in on that panel for me, uh, you know, you learn something. You should learn something in every panel that you sit in on. When a guy like you know, when you're sitting up on a panel with some other folks, there's nothing that you're not going to learn going into something like that as as a, an as an audience member. But to watch them sort of pick through um, all of the details of two por the other portfolio I won't get into, but it was just a it was sixteen brand new houses that were built in Florida, uh, and so much different, right? There, it's very homogenous sort of. There's only three separate models. Um, you could sort of break it out. It wasn't a lot of heavy lifting to try to figure out, the, you know, what it, what the portfolio was. That said, uh, it was a forty five minute absolute jam-packed info session that getting back to why people should attend events like this. Look, if you're a guy and you've got, look, I've got 15 rentals in my portfolio, or I've got 50 rentals in my portfolio, and I'm trying to get to 100, there's no reason why you shouldn't be at something like IMN. And again, we're, we're not making a dime off. In fact, I think you pay, I think you pay handsomely to be a part, a part of yeah. IMN, so we're not making yeah. any money off of Um So yeah, I, I was just... Uh, I was blown away by the level of uh, of um, the investor there. Um, I thought that the vendors there was a lot of really top notch vendors at, at IMN. The next one comes up in Miami, right, Jack? Yeah, Miami in May, I, I believe. They're twice a year. I think it's Scottsdale and then and then uh, Miami. Uh, I'd encourage anyone who wants to up their game, uh, who wants to get better operationally, who wants to have access to better capital. Um, just speak with a just a better level of investors. Uh, I'd I'd really encourage everybody to check it out. In fact, yeah, I, I, over the next few episodes, we're going to try to get on uh, some of the attendees. Um, there's a lot of folks who come in each year and they're recognized for you know how they've grown their businesses, how they become better, they receive awards, and so we we intend to try to get some of those folks on, um, so you can hear directly from investors who were there as well. Um, but uh, any last takeaways? Yes, yeah, so we did a um speaking of which, so we we 
we brought all of our, our recording equipment to the podcast equipment, podcast equipment to our um, to our room because we had the room set up there as a, as a sponsor, as a vendor. And um, we endeavored to hmm. grab a whole bunch of people and be like, dude, we'll just do a bunch of like 20 minute recordings and like, you know, get a bunch of content. There's so many great people here. And uh, so we set everything up and and then the conference started and then for two days straight, two and a half days straight, we were just talking to people constantly and uh, going for, going to different sessions and talking to tons of people in the hall. So we didn't, we, we uh, didn't execute as well on that business plan as we could have. We'll do a yeah. better job in Miami of getting more on-site recordings, but we, we were, we were able to grab uh, a really good friend of ours, Alex Hermani from Dallas, Who's uh, 99 Capital, and he had the uh, he was nice enough to give us about 20 minutes uh, right before he went to talk on a panel uh, and talk about his new fund and his experience in Dallas. He's got about 300 units there, and there they just uh, he just raised a new kind of friends and family fund, and he's going to start buying rentals again. He's been sitting on he's one of those guys who's been sitting on the sidelines the past couple years uh, because he just hasn't seen the economics be that attractive, but he's now dipping his toe back into the water. So um, that'll be the next episode that's uploaded our conversation with Alex. So definitely check that out. And all the other dozens and dozens of, of operators that we talked to, as Craig mentioned, we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll get those, get, get a bunch of those guys on here because they've all got great stories and it's really interesting to, uh, to get their perspectives on what they're up to these days. Yeah. I think what we discovered was uh, when you go to this conference or conferences like it, you, you truly are pulled in a million different directions. And when you try to catch somebody for a drive-by, Hey, come sit down for 20 minutes. It's first of all, it's even hard to find them in such a large place, much less, then get them to sit down. So we'll be a little bit more intentional about uh, scheduling in the future. But um, Alex is a great conversation that I hope everybody checks out. This is a guy who literally started off with one house and uh, has now grown it to 300 plus and has now built a fund around uh, doing the same. So please check that out. Jack, anything else before we finish up? No, no, it's great. Uh, it was a great conference. And uh, as, as Craig mentioned, I recommend anybody come to that as well. It's, it's one that we've gone to. It's, it's the only conference that I always go to. I'll say, I'll say that. Right? Like I, go to, I go to the IMN twice a year, and I've been doing it since 2013 when they started. I still get value. Well, that's, uh, that's it for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed this episode uh, regarding IMN. I'm Craig Fuhr, and this is Jack Bevere. Thanks for tuning in to Real Investor Radio. We'll see you next time.